by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. There's so much more nuance to sustainability that the current culture or the stereotypical culture around sustainability tends to exclude. So, or like not be ignorant of or not take into consideration. So I think with that nuance that I think a lot of climate activists like myself are trying to perpetuate with being more inclusive and being more intersectional, I think the culture is shifting in a way that a lot more people can see themselves as a part of the movement. And that's Lauren Ritchie, uh, intersectional climate activist, writer for Brown Girl, Green, and creator of It's Eco Gal on Instagram. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Miss Ritchie, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's so good to talk with you. Let me uh, give you a bio here. Mm -hmm. it, is, it, it is impressive. So let me read it here for the people. Thank you. Lauren Ritchie is a 19-year-old Bahamian intersectional climate activist, writer, and student studying sustainable development and political science at Columbia University in New York City. She is the creator of EcoGal, that's at EcoGal is her Twitter, a digital platform that educates on global climate justice, promotes intersectional climate action, and seeks to make sustainable living more accessible and inclusive by amplifying the voices of marginalized communities. She's also a writer and content strategist for Brown Green Girl and the co-host of the podcast, Black Girl Blueprint, a platform to center the voices and celebrate the accomplishments of young Black women in a vast array of fields. Man, and I am so pumped up. I'm so excited to have her with me. Lauren, how are you? I'm doing well. It's a good day, a nice morning. I don't have any classes today, which is really, really nice. So yeah, the day off, I'm excited to be here, excited to have this conversation, to just talk and chat. So yeah, it's a good day. Man, well, first, the question we ask everyone, and I want to hear your deep, like, man, this is who I am. Who is Lauren Ritchie? Right. I think on the surface, I think you, you listed off um, all the things that people typically think is Lauren Ritchie. But I think for me, honestly, I'm just an island girl who really cares about her country. And I think at mm -hmm. the heart, that's who I am. And I think that at the heart of the work that I do, that's the most important thing, the motivation, the center for it. So I think at the root, at my core, um, I'm just, just a girl who cares about her community and wants to help people, which as, it sounds a little corny, it sounds a little bit cliche, but helping people has always been really, really important to me. So that's a big part of who I am and what I would say. Now, are you... Were you born in the Bahamas or your parents in the Bahamas? What's your, what's your background on that? So I was born in the Bahamas, raised in the okay. Bahamas, 
I live there. I'm only here for school. I'm an international student. So, so you are a true Caribbean girl. Through and through. That's it. Through yeah. and through. Yeah, exactly. That, so that Sorry. means you eat you eat like plantain and dashing bush and plantain. cassava. Everything. All, all that. All of it. All of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the top Bahamian dish? Like if you had to if you had to right now, if you had to pick your your dish, oh, like if you had if, you, if your people was like, listen, this is what I want to eat, what 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 would it be? Definitely. So the Bahamas is known for conch, which is like, you know, conch shells that people think of. But there's actually um, something that we eat inside it. And we make everything that you could think of out of it. So there's a thing called conch fritters, which is basically just think like fried dough, I suppose, with conch inside. It's so good. Like you batter it up and fry it conch salad you just chop it up put it in there with like um vegetables and everything like that stewed conch too grilled conch crack conch anything with conch and i'm here for it so that's Man, that's what's up and you can hear the as you were saying that the accent came out it was like you were like whenever you went back home about, whenever i talk about home the accent comes out a little bit this is my my podcast voice but you know the <laughs> that's accent wonderful comes out. So let's talk about that. So, I mean, clearly for people who don't know, the Caribbean is front and center in the climate crisis. Definitely, yeah. So give them that break, that, that, that breakdown. I think we sometimes we miss, like you talk about what's going on here in the States or sometimes over on the continent or in other parts of the world, but they miss the Caribbean. So mm-hmm. give them that breakdown how the climate crisis is impacting your home. Exactly, yeah. So I think a lot of people... To often neglect the Caribbean and the like the climate conversation, as you were saying. And I think it doesn't make any sense because the Caribbean is one of the places that gets most affected. And I think people typically think of sea level rise, which is a very, very big issue as well. But natural disasters are the main way that um, the climate crisis has affected my home country, just because with, you know, climate science and everything, as climate is changing, high Um, intensity storms are becoming increasingly more common. So my island, in particular, Grand Bahama Island, which is the northernmost island in the Bahamas, we have gotten some Category 5 hurricanes, like, basically back-to-back. Like, Hurricane Dorian last year was Mm -hmm. absolutely catastrophic, one of the strongest hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean. And it just has a huge, huge impact not even just because it's a very strong storm, but also thinking about the fact that the Caribbean is full of developing countries. So while the U.S. might have the resources to be able to adapt to that climate crisis in that way or be able to recover more quickly, for us, especially in our you know less developed communities within the Bahamas, that's catastrophic. People lost their homes. People lost their lives. So with thinking about the climate crisis, it's so important to make sure you have those developing countries within that conversation because we're impacted the most, but we contribute the least to climate change. So definitely, I think, you know, understanding that we're very vulnerable and we're very at risk. So at the end of the day, like we need that protection and we need to think about small island nations when we're talking about the climate crisis. No, definitely. Explain what you mean when you say we, we, we are the most at risk but contribute the least to the crisis? So when you think about it, basically the countries that are contributing the most to climate change would be the more developed nations, which can have more greenhouse gas emissions in that regard. So with whether that's, you know, the big corporations 
or the big factories or basically, you know, the big economies that are doing a lot of this production, those are the ones that are emitting the most greenhouse gases, which are contributing to climate change. So you think in the U.S., you think China, but it's definitely not going to be a little island that's this big in the Bahamas that is going to be, you know, bringing all those emissions. But when it comes down to it and the climate crisis actually happens and sea levels start rising and natural disasters start happening, it's going to be those islands that are hit the hardest and have, you know, the the worst impacts. Because while the U.S. and China have the resources to be able to, you know, have it not hit them as hard, the small, um, yeah, less developed countries that aren't contributing much are going to get hit very hard. Man, that's real talk. It is. Man, so so Lauren, when you when you think about now that you're here in the States and you're studying, congratulations on going to Columbia. Thank you. I'm sure they're happy to have you. It's wonderful <laughs> in that aspect. Um, what does it mean now in this moment when you're seeing the unrest in this country? How do you connect to that? I mean, what is what is it you can pull on from your experience from the Bahamas? Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's different because obviously it's a different country, but obviously we have, there is, uh, you know, obviously there's poverty and yeah. there's classism everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but but how do you connect the dots? When people will see you, they'll see you as just a, a black girl. Yeah. So how do you connect the dots here in America? Yeah, I'm very, very aware of the fact that, you know, even though I grew up in the Bahamas and it's a country that's almost 95% black, I would say, you know, I'm very used to, you know, having black teachers, having black people in government or whatever. And the first time, you know, I came to live in the U.S., that was just not the case. And I had to re, you know, reset my mind, understanding that, oh, I was the majority in my country, but now I'm a minority here and I'm not, Mm. you know, I don't have that same dynamic. But I think with what you're saying as well, in terms of you know, classism and racism, that's everywhere. And I think people don't even understand how widespread and systemic that is, just because, you know, even though the Bahamas is a predominantly black country, we still have white foreigners who come in and try to own the place. We still have, you know, that same hierarchy where maybe white tourists may get treated better than, you know, black tourists, or even, you know, thinking about byproducts of racism in a sense when you think of colorism and featurism and things that stem from you know eurocentric standards of beauty that's very very prevalent in the bahamas so it all boils down to you know white supremacy and colonialism those effects are widespread everywhere across the world whether you're the majority in your country or the minority so definitely understanding that like at the end of the day yes i am caribbean and yes in my country i'm the majority but also Regardless, I'm a black woman and regardless, wherever I go, I'm going to navigate society as a black woman. So I think that is very, very important to me and understanding, like I said, how I navigate the world, how I navigate Colombia and being in the U.S. And also understanding my privileges as well that come with that. I think that's important as well because I am, you know, a lighter skinned black woman and I have certain privileges that and opportunities that might come with that. Also, you know, the fact that I'm at Columbia is a privilege in and of itself because not everybody has that opportunity. So I think I'm just very, very aware of my identity and all of the different, you know, pieces that make it up, whether that's my race, my ethnicity, my, you know, socioeconomic status, things like that. So I'm definitely very, very aware and I carry that wherever I go, no matter where 
you know, in the world I am. Mm, that's powerful. So let's get to that because you're bringing culture, obviously, from the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Speaking about the culture, uh, what's, what's the uh, top music in the Bahamas? Is it calypso, reggae, hip hop? Uh, what, what, what do you listen to? And what do your parents listen to? That's the two important different questions. You, you and your parents, music uh, and mm. culture in the Bahamas. I think it depends on which generation you're talking to. I no, think it's, it's clear. Your generation, you. What do you, my generation, you, okay. Yeah, what, what do you, and, and, then, and then, you, then you, then your parents. So what do okay, you listen okay, to? Okay, okay, okay. So I think my generation, and me in particular, I'm very, very much, I really like R&B music. I really like okay. neo-soul music. Also really like okay. soca and dance hall music. Um, okay. So I think in terms of Caribbean music, soca and dance hall are most prevalent. Um, but my dad listened to a lot of reggae. My dad really liked reggae music. Yes. So um, we have a lot of influence as well coming, like being so close to the United States. Also, hip hop and African-American culture is very, you know, widespread. So hip hop music, um, rap music. That's what my little brother loves to listen to. So um, pretty much we get a little bit of everything, but when it comes to like the parties and things like that, soca and dance hall is gonna be played the most. We also have our own um, Bahamian music, which also gets played at functions, which isn't admittedly- So tell me what is Bahamian music? Give me so, that, I, I don't- I, No, no, it's not very widespread in the same way that, you know, Jamaican <laughs> culture is, because that's what everyone thinks the Caribbean is, but we have music called rake and scrape music, and it's, it's basically, you know, our- rake and, You said rake and scrape? Rake, rake and scrape. So it's okay. basically- uh, I know. So we have a um, festival that's unique to the Bahamas, and it's called Junkanoo. And that is where, you know, we would play like this, you know, rake and scrape music. It's kind of, it's so hard for me to describe, honestly, but I highly recommend listening to it. It's very, very good. Um, and it's very, like, native to the Bahamas, and I really like it. And it just makes me feel very at home, and I love it. But it's kind of a mix. It's kind of... It's, it's kind of Calypso-y, I want to say. I'm not sure. It's hard to put it into a category, but yeah, Bahamian people, I, I, I like it. I like it. Rick and Scrape. I got to make sure we, we got to, we got to add some when we, when we, when we, when we play this, we got to put some Rick and Scrape in there. We got to add that into the, uh, the playlist. It's like an instrument kind of, and you just kind of grate something and it makes it, I'm not going to imitate it because I'll embarrass myself, but. Now, now, do they play Raking the Scrape like around holidays, like Christmas? Is that like a time, like a Raking the Scrape, like around that kind of season when people like play Raking the Scrape and go home to home? <laughs> I mean, I think Raking the Scrape, well, it's funny that you say that because the Junkanoo Festival that I was talking about happens um, around that time. So New Year's Christmas time is when you'll have the festival and people walk through the streets and then that's when you'll hear, you know, that type of music. So, yes. In a sense, kind of, a little bit. Um, but it's basically just when you hear Bahamian music, that's what the genre of music for Bahamian music is called. Mm, that's amazing. So when you think about culture and you hear, I, you just lit up as you're talking. I, I, you just taught me something. I didn't know about Rake and Scrape. <laughs> I am now going to check out Rake and Scrape and check that out. But you lit up as you discussed your culture. You lit up. I mean, you literally... We're beaming about this the conch and just the the food that, and that aspect, and that's part of the culture. Does the climate movement have a culture as well? And meaning, does that culture also do they have a certain way of discussing 
and do they light up? But does that is that their way that you have to then learn that culture, or does that culture exclude? Mm. I think there's I think there's two parts to this question. I think definitely there is a culture around the climate movement. I think definitely people who are very, very involved light up when they talk about it. I mean, I can talk to you about sustainable fashion and things like that all day. And I, I will light up about that as well because it's something I'm passionate about. And it's a cause that I'm championing and I really you know, care about. So in that regard, definitely I'll light up when I talk about it. Um, Especially you'll find it when people talk about like veganism as well, they'll get really excited or even eco-friendly products. They'll get really excited to share those things. So in that regard, you know, people who are within the climate movement definitely have their own culture around it. Um, To what you were saying, though, about whether it's exclusionary, I think it definitely is. I think it's something that if you're not really a part of it, you won't really get it. And I guess that can be said for any culture um, in terms of, you know, in order to fully, fully understand it, you have to be within that movement. But I think there is an issue within the climate movement with being exclusionary. One, because it's a very, very white movement. So I think if you aren't white or wealthy, it can feel like there's not much that you can do. And it's not really, you know, something that was made for you to be a part of. And also just it can be very, very judgmental. So if I'm, you know, going and I'm really, really passionate about talking about sustainable fashion, and someone tells me that, you know, they only shop at fast fashion brands, which are really bad for the environment, a lot of sustainable people would be like, oh my goodness, how can you do that? You're a terrible person that's so bad for the environment without actually thinking about like, maybe that's all that person can afford. Maybe that's, you know, the only thing that's size inclusive, you know? So I think there's so much more nuance to sustainability that the current culture or the stereotypical culture around sustainability tends to exclude so or like not be ignorant of or not take into consideration. So I think with that nuance that I think a lot of climate activists like myself are trying to perpetuate with being more inclusive and being more intersectional, I think the culture is shifting in a way that a lot more people can see themselves as a part of the movement. But when I first got into sustainability, I mean, you know, I would be the only black person in the room. No one's talking about um, environmental justice. No one's talking about how it impacts, you know, poor communities. It's all about like, the trees are dying, the marine ecosystems, oh no. And I'm like, people are on this planet too. Let's not forget about them. So definitely can be a little narrow-minded sometimes, but I'm really happy that the work is being done to try to shift away from that. No, thank you. I mean, that's, first of all, that's powerful. Thank you for that. That makes me... I'm so glad that you're seeing it from that lens. But then I ask this question, because obviously you're in this fight to win. You're not in this fight just to promote just being green, right? You're in this fight because you actually want to transition from fossil fuels to clean energy. And in that, um, understand that there is a culture. Um, what can be done to broaden that? Like the same way, if you came and said, hey, Rev, I have some conk. I have, we're going to listen to some, 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 some Reagan scrape, uh, Reagan scrape, right? Reagan scrape. Reagan scrape. If you can't even say, hey, Rev, we got some Reagan scrape with some conk. I'm there. I'm like, all right, come on, Lord. Let's tell where we got to go. I'm coming for that. I'm coming for that. That's inviting, right? That's inviting. But this sometimes, the culture, the movement is not inviting. What's your idea of 
making it inviting and broadening and, and so that people want to be a part of that. So you're, you're not the only one in the room. Mm-hmm. I think the first step with that inclusivity is making it more accessible. So I think the thing that turns people off from the movement is how accessible and how difficult it can seem to be a part of it. Like if I brought you, you know, that conk and that rake and scrape music and I was like, okay, you have to pay a thousand dollars to listen to it and eat it. You're like, actually, never mind. I'm not interested in that. Don't want to do that anymore. You're okay. So I think with, that's the same way with the climate movement, especially when you're thinking about, you know, veganism and sustainable fashion, like it's really expensive. And if you can buy a shirt for $15 versus buying a shirt for $200, you're going to pick the $15 shirt and that's, and that's okay. So I think part of making sustainability more inviting is trying to break down that thing that makes it seem like it's only something for the higher class and let more people get involved in it that way. So making sustainability more affordable, um, making it something that's more accessible also in terms of, you know, access to these items, like definitely Um, I was thinking about, you know, thrifting is a less expensive way or like buying secondhand is definitely a less expensive way to contribute to, you know, like a more sustainable planet. But that's not available everywhere. Like we don't have thrift stores really on my island. Like I'd never seen a thrift store before until I came to the U.S. So maybe trying to broaden that scope to try to make those resources available for people who are in these communities where it's not available is something that would also make it more inviting because, I mean, it also can be fun in some regards. I think I personally have a great time whenever I go thrifting with my friends. And I think the important thing here is breaking down the stereotype that it is difficult to be sustainable or that it's really hard and you have to like change your entire life. And, you know, it makes it sound like something that you don't want to be a part of, but People don't even think about there are things that you're already doing in your day to day life that might be sustainable and you're not even thinking about it. Like especially in Caribbean households, like reusing everything like we'll have, you know, a bowl for one thing and you wash it out and then you use it for something else like that's sustainable. And my culture and my country has been doing that for years without even knowing that it's sustainable or choosing to walk Mm. somewhere or, you know, carpooling, little things, turning off the lights. Like these are all things that you can do as an individual to be more sustainable. So I think having more people who are at the forefront of the movement, preaching that to people and letting them know that you can participate in any way that you can. And I think something that I like to say is that sustainability is really making the choice to do better by you know people and by the planet whenever you have a choice at all. So if you don't mm. have Say a, that. if you don't have a choice in the matter, then that's okay. Just do it in any way that's tangible and accessible and works for you. It's something that I think is really really important. Um so wow. yeah. <laughs> I can no, talk about no, this no. all day, but yeah. No 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 no. No, it's that's dope because I think that we need to, so from where I come from, we need to, to be successful. We need to make this process cool and fun and accessible, right? And I, I love, and I want to get into some of your, I, I, I need to give you some fashion tips here, Lauren. I want to get to, so so give me your, let's start there. Give me some of your green uh, 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 eco fashion tips right now. So if you were going to hook me up and say, Rev, to get me some new gear, where would you send me to? And don't say, I mean, you can say Patagonia and, and whatever, but. I wouldn't send would you, you there. If, I don't, okay, I don't okay. know what your budget is. Okay. I don't know if you're okay, well, I mean, I mean, I'm spending, so I'm, I'm going to spend, spend uh, 
cross my producer's budget. Okay. Fair. <laughs> so he got the he got the big money. So we're gonna spend his so we're gonna spend his money. So I'm I'm coming balling, but I'm coming from a standpoint of you know my culture, yeah. my culture. You know, so 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 let me know what we're gonna. But I want to change up my gear. I want to get. I want to figure out how to change it up. But I still want to be hip hop. I want to okay. be. I want to be from you know hip hop and cool and cool. Okay. Well, the first question I was ask you is, do you need to change up your look, or do you just want to change up your look? Because at the end of the I day, need, I you need, need it. it. Okay. I probably need. Because something I often tell people is, you know, the most sustainable thing you can do is not buying anything new at all if you don't really need okay. to buy anything. Okay. So, so, keep, so keep what you got. Keep what you got and make sure you take care of it. Like, okay. and make sure you know if something rips, you don't just throw it away. You trust to try and see if there's a way to fix it instead of buying more but if you say you need to i would definitely in this you need to in this scenario um i would definitely recommend for well okay i'll start with some more affordable ethical brands that i think for the basics i would definitely recommend cotton k-o-t-n or organic basics they have some good stuff um, I'm trying to I'm trying to steer clear because I don't want to recommend very unaffordable things. I also know more about women's fashion, admittedly. So I'm I mean, I, I, I mean, but I, I'm hip hop, so you just like some. I mean, I'm a want some swag. I want some, okay. some nice I'm stuff. To, honestly, I ain't want everything to be just be thrift store now. <laughs> yeah, I think honestly, I'm not sure. I I feel like we have very very different styles. So I'm trying to think of where I would send you. That's not thrift shopping because you said you don't want to go. Th- you don't want. Oh to- no no no! I mean, I want I want a combination. So give me some thrift, but give me something. You know, give me something that may be. You know, give, give me some high end thrift. Okay. Yeah, I I just go to the the thrift stores that are in New York, and that's that's about it. Thrift stores in New York. Um, really? I know a lot of of women's clothing <laughs> brands. I'm so sorry I can't help out more. I'm trying to think of things that are. Um, and, oh, there's also, oh my gosh, Tentry. I don't think that's very much your style, though. Okay. I think that's something else that people don't think about is that, like, when you're buying these sustainable fashion clothes, like, there's white people that are making them. So, like, what what style are the, the clothes actually being, you know, mm. made in that everyone can actually like them? Because my friends have said that, too. Um, there was a brand that I worked with called um, Reformation, and they were like, these I like sustainable clothes. It's good for the environment. But like, this is not my style. I would never wear anything like this. So that's something to take into consideration too with sustainable fashion. But yeah, maybe uh, I need to learn more about men's sustainable fashion. Yeah, yeah, I that, feel like I've been, be fo- that's, that's what that's I need to do. That's how I need to work on myself. Just educate myself more on men's sustainable fashion. Because- well, there you go. When you find out, and particularly on uh, sneakers, I, I know that my boy, uh, uh, I know that there's been some good stuff Pharrell has had some stuff he's been doing around with the plastics, you know, and redoing it for sneakers. So I'm, we got to figure that out. And and I, I really, I, I do, I really want to get the hip hop community. I think that's the end way. I think if the hip hop community, um, particularly a lot of the artists that, you know, we work with could get more into the eco fashion of this, that could definitely be. And maybe we maybe maybe I'll come out and get you and I will, we'll consult on a, on an eco fashion show that we'll do with the hip in New York. But when we can, when we can not, well, I guess when we can come together again at some point in time, but we'll, we'll Those figure sne- that out. The sneakers made of recycled plastics are a big thing too. I actually have a pair. I'm doing a giveaway oh. on my Instagram. I have a pair 
of um, recycled things. They're right. Actually, I'm just going to pull it up yeah. because it is right here. I have these. They're made from recycled plastics. They are women's shoes, though, which is why I didn't recommend them. But okay. Okay. these are made from recycled plastics. And, you know, I mean, I don't know how much um, tennis shoes typically cost because I'm, I'd be thrifting. But, you know, I don't think they're, like, super, super expensive compared to, like, some of the Jordans and stuff my, my brother has bought. So I definitely... Yeah, well, but no. Speaking of Instagram, because you got like a crazy following that's growing. You have like 51 or 52,000 followers at your It's Eco Gal on Instagram. And so the question is like, when did you gain most of your followers? Was it like when you first just got started in the movement or and when you started giving away plastic shoes or? <laughs> Honestly, oh. The thing is, people see EcoGal and they assume that I've had it forever, but I really just made it in May. Like, it's only been, like, wow. four months or four, five, four months, five months. It has not been very, very long. Um, and it started out really as just a way for me to engage with, like, my friends and my peers with talking about sustainability, kind of trying to make it more inclusive because, you know, I went home because of COVID and I was back in the Bahamas and I was thinking like, I'm in all these sustainable development classes, but all the information that I'm learning, my friends here don't know anything about that. My parents don't even know about that. And I wanted to bring that to the Bahamian community, especially wow. young people and get them more involved. So it started as, it started out actually with articles that I was writing, which is I have a website, but I haven't written an article in a while, but um, I definitely would write stuff about, you know, fast fashion and sustainable fashion because people didn't even know what fast fashion was. Um, I would write about advice on sustainable eating, um, lots of stuff like that. Zero waste tips, try to make it more inclusive. And I think the page began to grow more um, around the time of the Black Lives Matter movement. Because I think for me, I had this page and yes, it was dedicated to sustainability. And yes, it started out all about environmental sustainability but I was also thinking, I can't just not talk about this. I can't, you know, be saying that I'm dedicated to climate justice and creating a better world and then not use this platform to educate about social justice as well. So I think right. that's where the transition came in. Also, I noticed when I first started the platform, the only people who were following it that weren't my friends were like, these are random middle-aged white women because that's like what the sustainability is. And they were like showing up their gardens. And I realized that none of them at all were talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was like, mm -mm. unfollow, unfollow. So I just went on an unfollowing spree, kind of a change up the page too, because I was like, I, I, I would not be able to sleep at night if I didn't do all that I could to bring that social justice forward and use this platform for that. So I did not expect it to grow in the way that it did. I think when I started posting about um, social justice, I was only at about maybe one, not even, I probably hadn't even hit 1,000 followers yet. But I was like, I still had a voice to share. I still have information. The first post that I did on this matter was a post about Black on Black crime. And mm -hmm. just basically saying how it was a way to derail the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm like, it was it was uh, quite the post, um, but people really resonated with it. And it was my first post to really like blow up and gain a lot of traction. And I was like, this has reached a lot of people. And then I started making more infographics like that with information that I knew that I wanted to share, doing some research of other things. So from there it grew 
Um, and I'm still making sure I have that intersection between the environment, but also social justice and marginalized communities, because that's always been my focus with, you know, with what I said at the beginning about wanting to protect my island. That also comes with, you know, any other community that doesn't have the resources to be able to protect themselves. So I think that's very, very important for me to make those intersections all the time. Do you find that there are folks, I mean, obviously you are who you are, right? You're clearly who you are. You're Lauren Ritchie and, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you know, you have, no, you are who you are, right? And you are, you, you have a certain viewpoint that's clear. Um, but do you still see people coming to your page and social media when you're discussing issues of the movement for black lives being uncomfortable? And, 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 and how does that work? Oh, all the time. Every single time. Yeah, my posts be making the white supremacists very, very upset. They get very angry. Um, it's sometimes, at first it was very difficult for me just because I wasn't used to having a platform where people could share so much opinions. I think I had a personal Instagram, which had like a decent amount of followers at the time, but no one's really giving any opinions. There's no discussions going on. I remember the first time I got some hate comments, the first time I got some hate DMs, I didn't know what to do with that information. Like people I'd never met before with no profile picture were like calling me names and they were being very, very racist towards me. And you know, I didn't really know what to make of that. Um, and I hate to, the fact that when I spoke to a lot of my other friends who were in those spaces, they were like, yeah, like this is common. This is what comes along with the work. And it wasn't necessarily like I was like, OK, I guess this is what I signed up for because I don't want to, you know, remove the accountability in that way. Being like, I should have expected this because it's not my fault at all or that's not a, what the byproduct of this work should be. But, yeah, understanding that people get really, really angry and upset and... Um, navigating those spaces, I just block. EcoGal has a lot of people blocked, uh, a lot of people deleted, just because I think there is a very big difference between having an opinion that disagrees and being blatantly rude and disrespectful. So I think it's very, yeah. very, I love productive conversation. I love constructive, you know, whether it's constructive criticism or constructive being like, okay, here's a different viewpoint. I love those discussions. I actively encourage those discussions on my platform. But, you know, I've had certain posts that would be talking about ableism and I'd be like, these words, when you say them, they're very, very offensive to these people. And here's why. And people will go in the comments and just say those words or call me those words or, you know, call other people those words. And I'm like, this is not productive. First of all, do you not have a, like a, 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 something else better to do at all with your day than commenting um, the R word a hundred times under my post? And I'm just like... Things like that, I just block and delete. And it doesn't really get to me the same way because I feel like I've gotten to a point of understanding that sometimes the work I'm doing feels bigger than myself. And while I know that it's important, you know, to make sure I safeguard my mental health, take breaks when I need to, I also know that sometimes it's not about me and that's okay. So this, me making a post about social justice to raise awareness, that's not really about me personally. That's the message that I'm trying to share. You know what I mean? So it doesn't really matter to me. Yeah. No, about like likes or like having a lot of followers. It's like, 
I want to get this information to as much people as possible because I think it's important for everyone to know. So kind of I kind of derailed the topic a little bit there. But yes, people people are very, very uncomfortable when they have to look within themselves and do that introspection, especially I did a post about privilege. They were like, white privilege doesn't exist. I'm like, okay, Mm. all right, buddy. (laughs) All right. okay. so things like that. But yeah. What does climate activism look like to you? Mm -hmm. I think definitely, like I said before, climate activism is that intersection between. And and, let me me, me say this. What does it look like based upon online and offline? Mm, Okay. Well, like I said before, I think for me, real climate activism makes that intersection between environmental justice and social justice. I think you can't have climate justice without racial justice, without you know, trying to bridge the class divide and things like that. I think that's very, very important. I think online versus offline, I feel like if you're going to talk the talk, you got to walk the walk as much as possible. I think I've seen definitely some people who were um, doing the online activism and I knew them in person and I was like, that's not the energy that you had last week. Um, I think that was something that I really recognize a lot with the rise of online activism. Like even with the people who were doing, you know, the hate comments under my post or whatever, I would go on their page and they had the Black Lives Matter in their bio. And I'm like, that comment you just made wasn't very Black Lives Matter-y over there. So I think there was definitely a lot of people who were using this as an opportunity you know, to make themselves look good, make themselves feel good. Like, I'm such a good person. And then you would see that their actual thoughts didn't really match up to that. So I think climate activism is trying to practice what you preach as much as possible, I think, in terms of bridging offline and online. So, yeah, I think, it, like I said, that inclusivity is very, very important to me. I don't think you can really be a climate activist or call yourself a climate activist if you're shaming low-income people for not being able to afford certain things for sustainability. I think you need to be very, very open-minded and tolerant to do this work because nothing's ever as clear-cut as it seems. You know, I think there has been a lot of climate activism in the past that has been very, very much like everyone can be sustainable. And if you're not being sustainable, you're very lazy. Like being vegan is not that hard. And that's why that toxic, you know, culture of sustainability that turned people away was so, so popular. But I think Real activism is understanding that it's so much more nuanced than that. And everything is so much more complex than just black and white. And I think being open-minded to have those conversations to navigate and be like, I understand your viewpoint, but here's how it affects other people. Or here's a different side to that story. So that's important. Also, accountability, I think, is really important in this work. I think when you are opening yourself up to having such a big platform that's reaching so many people, especially with online activism... I think you have to be open to criticism and you have to be open to doing some learning and unlearning yourself. Like I've done posts in the past um, where I think the example I'll use is with like disabilities. So I had been taught that the best way to talk about disabilities is to use um, person first language. So person with a disability, but people in the comments were like, actually the disabled community prefers disabled people. That's the terminology that we prefer. And I think you can't really be in this line of work if you have a kind of a high and mighty type of opinion of, you know, I know everything. I'm I'm the teacher here, you know, and I think 
um, that's very, very harmful. And I think having, you know, the idea that you can't learn from the people that you're educating is in and of itself kind of ridiculous. And it's a very big problem definitely that you'll find um, when a lot of activists go into especially low-income communities and try to dictate to them, you know, based on their theory and not take into account the actual lived experiences of people who live there. So, No, that's real. No, that's real. But that also leads into, so, and, and you can help me with this one. So I understand that in the climate movement, there's a climate celebrity culture. Now, I know for myself, I know how people would say that, well, Rev, you fit into that in some cases. The people, you know, and, and I understand that that's used for audience building or, you know, whatever the case may be. So I'm, I'm fine with that aspect. What I'm not cool with, and this is really my question, is I don't like the fact that people can't be touched. Like, I think it's very dangerous. I think that you, as you put so well, Lauren, that people can hide behind things and can be very different when you meet them. And I think that the old school of activism, where you can look me in the eye, look you in the eye, and you can see if I'm real, are we really about it for our community, that's missing because I, you can put up an image and you can put up videos. So how do we deal with that? I mean, what's the benefit? Um, I kind of, you know, obviously one's audience, but I just said it, with climate celebrity culture, but what's also the problem? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think the benefit, like you said, is that audience building aspect. I think definitely climate change and climate action is a lot more widespread and known now. But I think having these people that you can look to and follow online who are consistently posting content related to the movement and educational content in that way does reach more people. And as their following grows, you know, it spreads more awareness. I've had tons of people who are like, I had no idea that this was an issue before. Thank you for telling me about this. So, I mean, in that way, I mean, I don't personally consider myself to be like a climate celebrity, but I think with... You are. You are. No, 100%. You think so? 100%. You are a climate celebrity in a good way. In a good way. I think that we need folks to... Yeah, no, I think it's good for folks to have... Folks who have a brand. Now, this is again. I'm from a. I'm from a. I'm from a hip hop side. So let me just say that it's. Oh, it's good to have. It's good to have folks we can recognize, who we can look at, and be like, okay, I see what she's doing. But there is, you know, the Bible says where much is given, much is required. So that you have a situation where you've given a tremendous amount of responsibility with that as well. And how do you deal with that? I don't know. It's a lot of responsibility. I think, well, if I am considered a climate celebrity, then I'm very, very glad that there are more climate celebrities of color. Because I think before the past few months, everybody knew um, white climate activists and that was about it. So I think definitely that rise, I think, is very, very important when it comes to, you know, having some diversity in a movement that is so whitewashed. Critical. But yeah, there's a lot of responsibility there, definitely. I think... I do feel a lot of pressure now, sometimes. Now, is there a danger there, maybe, Lauren? Because in that, we also have a lot of white activists who are also propping up people who they want to prop up and not coming from the community. Could that be a problem? I think that comes into what I was talking about earlier. Um, I know, I don't know if you know Green Girl Leah, Leah Thomas. Um, she was talking about how 
when it comes to like who these brands want to pull up or who white, you know, climate activists want to pull up, most of the time it is the, you know, palatable or digestible people of color in that regard. And that's usually, you know, light skinned or biracial people. So I think that is something to consider in and of itself. Also, it can be very tokenizing, definitely, if it was, you know, you never really wanted to pull up activists of color now and before, but now you feel obligated to. So that's the reason why you're doing it. Um, I also kind of see a problem with kind of on the flip side of what you were saying when there are, you know, the white activists that will like speak on issues pertaining to communities of color and not actually support any communities of color or people of color. I think if, you know, a brand wants to have a conversation about environmental racism, they should be having that conversation or should be having the speaker for that be someone who's actually, you know, a person of color or actually has that lived experience instead of having a white activist talk about it. And I think that has been the issue in the past. You'll have all of these white activists being like, we need to um, fix racism, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, you could have gotten a black person to say that. You could have gotten an indigenous person to say that. So yeah, with that climate celebrity culture, I think is um, shifting years a little bit. I think it's definitely a lot of responsibility on the people who are in those positions. I think there's definitely, you have to be very, very okay. Like I said, okay with criticism, okay with being held accountable. Um, I think with that, there also have been some people who potentially could have seen this as a way to gain more popularity or gain more notoriety and be more of a celebrity. And then in that regard, it's more of a a money-making scheme or a clout-chasing scheme than actually, you know, caring about the cause that you're trying. And there's really, unless you know these people in person, there's no way that you're going to know that. I think I'm ever the optimist, so I would would love to believe that everyone who's, you know, um, speaking about these causes actually cares about them. But at the end of the day, I don't know. I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, and I was talking about how it's awful how many people you'll see who, you know, will like just reshare something on their story um, as a way to make themselves seem like they care more about the cause that they don't really care about. But at the same time, you were like, well, what if that thing they shared in their story actually reached someone new who didn't know about it before? And then that person goes and, you know, does something good with that information. And it's so hard because even we have to recognize that even things that are very, very performative, and I think that's the word for with these, you know, um, people who are probably just doing it for the cloud and things like that, they are just being performative and not really care, like caring as much about the causes. But does that performative activism end up helping people if it's spreading awareness? And I think that is a difficult conversation to have. I don't really even know the answer because I don't know. No, no. That's no, but I love what you're saying though. I love, and I do think so. The performative activism is difficult for a lot of different reasons, but what you just said there is very, very key. That is, that it may reach somebody who didn't see them or them or the organization that they support as a part of that movement. So, for instance, I, I commended the other day on Rainforest Action Network who just put out that simple simple tweet. They put out there, say her name, you know, Brianna Taylor. And I told them that was just great. And I think that, and I said that every climate organization should say something. Because if even if, if even if it may be performative in some aspect, 
it will create a different viewpoint. If I see every single climate organization just simply saying, say her name, Brianna Taylor, that will create an, uh, a, a chamber of us listening differently. And so I agree with it. So there, there's some, clearly there's some, there's some cons, but there's definitely some pros to having the community, uh, our community in the climate movement uh, discuss that. And speaking of that, obviously you're, this is what you're studying. What are, what are some of the, let's get to some of the solutions. I want to get, I want, I want you to tell people what you think, how do we get out of this? How, how do we get out of this mess? How, how do we fix this crisis? What if, if I can give you the wand for the day, Lauren, and you could be in charge and you can say, okay, Rev gave it to me. Oh, I'm ready to get, I'm ready to get it. And uh, you can put your solutions. Would you be, you know, uh, the Green New Deal? Would you, I mean, would you do something over here with uh, creating, stopping all coal-fired power plants? Would you be making sure that we have no lead in our water? I mean, what, 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 what would it be that you would be? I think for... Okay, I think I would split it into two sections. I think on the mitigation side of it, which would be trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and I guess plateau us instead of letting it, you know, I mean, yeah. increase anymore. Thing is, these big corporations, they would be my, they would be first on my hit list. I'd be like, stop what you're doing. You're absolutely <laughs> a mess. And I think I would hold them accountable. I'd wave my wand. And in a perfect world, I would love to see them. First and foremost, I'd love to see them pay their workers ethical wages. We'll start there. Okay. That's important. Social sustainability. Also protecting the planet, though, I would love to see a transition into caring more about the planet than they care about lining their own pockets. So if that means that, you know, you are using more recycled materials or you're making less of a profit or you're, you know, paying more to have solar energy or something like that, I would like to see them make that trade-off because I think that that's very, very important. And I think on the adaptation side, I think, especially with the climate clock that was just put up in New York, I think a lot of people have the impression that like, we're okay for another seven years. And then once that seven year mark hits, like then things are gonna go downhill. And I'm like, no, that's incorrect. Things are bad now. And there are so many communities that are already struggling now. So I think on the adaptation side of it, I definitely would love to funnel resources into adaptation projects in the places that are already being extremely affected. So that's the Caribbean, that's definitely Sub-Saharan Africa as well, definitely places, um, Pacific Oceans, the Maldives as well. There's a climate refugee crisis going on. In Iraq, there's also like a climate refugee process, but there's also people dying from heat waves and heat strokes and dust storms. There's drought in places. There's, you know, so many different things that are currently happening now. So money, being funneled into adaptation to help to, I guess, reduce the amount of casualties that are happening or find ways, um, you know, to make the the impact less for these communities, I think would be very, very important. So mitigation, corporations, big companies, countries even, stop what you're doing, fix it. And then on the adaptation side, let's work to, you know, see the damage that's already been done and find a way to help with those communities. Okay, I love it. So you got your two wands. I'm going to give you a third one. Here's, here's, another, here's another one. And, okay, so now fix, now how do we fix the climate resiliency side? How do we manage that? How do we prepare for that? I feel like that would 
fall under um, adaptation. It would, but meaning so like getting our people ready to deal with this crisis. Okay. I feel, okay, for me, climate adaptation and climate resilience are two sides of the same coin. I think with what I was talking about with like the adaptation policies, I think that's a way to prepare people. So whether that's, um, you know, I, I think whether that's necessarily even thinking about in terms of natural disasters, whether that's setting up like safety nets. I think um, like social security safety nets, financial safety nets in the event of a crisis, I think that's a way to prepare people, but it's also a way that people are having to adapt to what's going on. So I think in that way, my adaptation and my resiliency one, we're gonna fuse those together. But I think those are pretty much the same projects, I think for me, um, because they'll have kind of the same effect. I think building resilience comes with adapting to what's currently going on. So I definitely, yeah, I think financially, I think communities need to have more resources. I think that's the best way to prepare for what's going on. I think education and awareness is also very, very important, um, especially for communities who don't really understand fully what's going on. I think something that I found in the Bahamian communities, like people knew that we were having more hurricanes, but nobody really put two and two together as to why those hurricanes were happening. So definitely helping communities to make those connections, I think is very, very important. It all falls under, there's there's work to be done, but I want to see it done. No. I, want, I want it to see I it happen. It. No, I love it, I love it. So I got two more questions, and one is actually, this is kind of, this is, this is a, a scenario, kind of with your, your magic wand, but say I, I came to you and I said, hey Lauren, I'm gonna give you this power. This is this is amazing power you have here. And yeah, that when you when you clap your hands, one of these two things will disappear, and no one will ever know. It is they wake up they wake up tomorrow morning, and it will be gone. But you can but but only one, so the the other one will remain, and the other one will be gone. And I said one is the climate crisis, and the other is white supremacy. Which one are you going to clap away? <laughs> I think white supremacy. I think Ooh. because I think okay, this is a little this is history a little history thing that I was learning in my class, but um something we talked about is you know colonialism is rooted in white supremacy and there's been a lot of articles written about how the beginning of the Anthropocene, which is basically the dawn of the human impact on the environment came from colonialism or it came from industrialism or capitalism or imperialism and all of those things kind of maybe jump-started the climate crisis in and of itself. So now I'm thinking if white supremacy is gone, would capitalism also be gone? Or if white supremacy was gone, would environmental injustice also be gone? And I think the way you think about it on, you could blame everything on white supremacy if you think if you if you really think about it. So, because even the climate movement in and of itself ha has white supremacist origins. So I think understanding that I don't know. I think the root of the problems with these big corporations is also white supremacy. So I think if the white supremacy was gone, would they be more inclined to be more open to fixing the climate crisis? if that capitalist and imperialist mentality wasn't there anymore. I don't know. 
This is a very hard question that you hit me with so early in the morning. But yes, I think I think I would pick. I think I would pick white supremacy. Man, well, you heard it right there, folks. So you know where to go to. You know you got to go to her her Instagram and 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 further that conversation at at its equal gal. Make sure at its equal gal to have that dialogue to see if she is right. If she, did she clap? If you woke up the next morning and um, that was gone. And uh, I'm going to ask my followers, I'm going to put a poll on my story now and ask my followers. Yeah, that's one. My last question to you. First of all, man, I, I definitely look forward for us to continue this dialogue. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure we will. It's, you know, you are, you are, you are phenomenal. And I'm wishing you so much success um, in the future. And I guess that's just really the question. Um, what is your um, what does your future look like for you? What, what, do you what, what, what do you have in store for yourself? Like, I mean, obviously you're not going to be at Columbia forever. Uh, they would love you to be there, paying tuition forever. <laughs> They'd love to keep me here. They'd love to keep you there, but uh, obviously that that will come to an end. And then what's 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 your plans after that? I'm not sure, honestly. I think I wish I could say that I have it all figured out, but I don't. And I mean, at 19, I don't really need to have it all figured out, but I think I know. Possibly law school might be in my future. I think it honestly all really depends. Um, but I think something that's very, very important to me is environmental justice. So I think whether that's working for a nonprofit or starting my own or just any type of you know project related to um, you know helping to stop environmental injustice is very important to me. Um, international policy making is also very important to me. So. Um, how, you know, relationships between countries work and how, you know, socially, environmental, you know, um, and everything, sustainability kind of all works together in relationships between countries. I just have so many interests and it's me trying to figure out how to make that into a profession, but I'm definitely going to keep doing this work. This work is not going to stop. Um, I'm going to keep up with EcoGal, keep making content. Um, I don't know how EcoGal is going to evolve, maybe. It may become, the platform may change and evolve in some ways, who knows in the future, but definitely these um, causes are still going to always be important to me. So in any way that I can, no matter what I will be doing, I will always be trying to help the little guy because that's that's important to me. Well, let's definitely talk because I think that I know that uh, here at Hip Hop Caucus, we definitely can see a, a star in the making. And so we definitely probably want to, Figure out how to scoop you up and 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 get all you use all those talents in some form and fashion. But nah, just keep on pushing and just keep on loving our people. Um, keep on loving your 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 home people back in in the Bahamas and just keep on just being. Never forget at the end of the day that um, what all that really matters is that you know our people do better, um, and that if we do that. Even when, we, no matter what happens, we would be successful. And I could definitely see you have just a bright, bright future. And we wish you the best. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Definitely. Lauren, if folks want to find you, besides uh, at, uh, your Instagram, uh, give them all the ways that they can find you. Of course. You can find my personal Instagram at Lauren A. Ritchie. You can also find my podcast at Black Girl Blueprint um, on Instagram, B Girl Blueprint on Twitter. 
Um, you can also listen to our episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, wherever else. Um, and yes, also theecogal.com. I still have some articles up there on eco-fascism and fast fashion if you're interested in reading those. And those, that's pretty much everywhere that you can find me. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Big 100, big, big 100.